everyone. This is Alicia Halliday, and this is this week's ASF Weekly Science Podcast. Today is June 15th, 2020. In light of the most recent acts of hatred and violence in the U.S., it's time to re-examine racial and ethnic disparities in autism care, and yes, they exist. They've existed for a while, and while the disparities are decreasing with each count of kids with ASD in the U.S., they're still there. How? What do they look like? Well, African-American children are diagnosed later. They're less likely to receive a diagnosis. The same for Hispanic children and those from disadvantaged economic backgrounds or low-income families. Those with very, very low incomes are less likely to get a diagnosis. This doesn't mean that black children or poor kids don't have autism spectrum disorder. It means that because of various barriers in the system, they're not able to obtain that same level of diagnosis and receive care. Why not? Are the services just not there? Are symptoms different in different groups of kids? That's a big no, by the way. Or is there systemic racism and bias in diagnoses some places? Why are they missed? Where is this going on in identification, screening, or diagnosis, or all three? Spoiler alert for later on in the podcast, it starts at screening, and the latter half of the podcast talks about a new study that's addressing this, But I first want to talk about a systematic review that outlines some of the major issues and what we know. This review was done by researchers from the Autism Speaks Autism Treatment Network, part of whom are funded by a grant through HRSA. But also, is this just a disparity in ASD diagnoses and screening? And does it extend to other developmental disabilities? We have special guest Devin Payne Sturgis from the University of Maryland, and Katie Hirabayashi from Johns Hopkins, who are studying the breadth of this disparity and how far it extends in developmental disorders. Saving that for last, though. In the first study, the systematic review, looking at disparities in service use, effectiveness of interventions, or quality of care, they asked three key questions. That's what a systematic review does. It starts out with a specific hypothesis. The first question was, what are the disparities in service use among children with ASD by race, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status? The second question was, are there differences in the effectiveness of interventions for children with ASD by race, ethnicity, and or low socioeconomic status? And the last question was, are there differences in the quality of care provided to children with ASD by race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status level? There are really not a ton of articles that look at this question properly. Remember, a systematic review really takes the ben de la creme. It takes the ones that are the highest quality. And so they just got 11 articles for the review. The consensus among all those articles is that racial and ethnic minorities are found to be less likely to have access to and thus use healthcare and treatment services. Hispanic children with ASD were found to have difficulty using barriers because of language and have higher odds of not having a personal doctor and increased difficulty of referrals compared to white children. African-American and Hispanic children had significantly lower use of specialty services like GI doctors, nutritionists, neurologists, and psychiatrists, and were less likely to access specialty procedures like ultrasounds, colonoscopies, endoscopies, EEGs, MRIs, sleep studies, you name it. Additionally, African-American and Hispanic families had more difficulty receiving acute care than non-Hispanic white children. As for the effectiveness of the interventions for children, did they differ by race, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status? 
Well, no, there's no evidence to say that they don't work well in these different racial and ethnic backgrounds. So it's not likely they don't access them because they're not as effective. And last, are there differences in the quality of care provided to children by race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status? Now, I'm not going to paraphrase here. This comes straight from the paper, and I'll quote, Lower quality care was reported by African-American and Hispanic families compared with non-Hispanic white families. African-American and Hispanic families describe poorer quality of care resulting from a lack of cultural competence. This means that families reported that their providers didn't understand or were not sensitive to their values or cultural beliefs. In addition, African-American and Hispanic families reported that their doctors didn't spend enough time with them, that they were not made to feel like a partner in their child's health care, and they were not provided enough information. And that's in comparison to non-Hispanic white families. African-American parents of children with ASD also reported that their children did not receive the family-centered care that is so essential, and this was, again, compared to other groups. Families with a low income were even more likely to report a quality of care than families with an income at a median level. So now you know. There's no ambiguity here. These kids from racial and ethnically diverse backgrounds are not receiving the same level of care, and it's not because these interventions don't work. So where do these disparities start? I hinted at the beginning that it starts at screening. These kids may be less likely to be screened. In order to study this, a collaboration in Massachusetts looked at participation in a multi-stage ASD screening process and assessment model that was embedded in Part C early intervention. In the U.S., all children from birth to three who are at risk for developmental delays and disabilities or whose parents have concern, which which is the risk, can receive federally mandated state-funded developmental services authorized by Part C of IDEA. So that's where the Part C early intervention comes in with this, with this screening study. There's variability, of course, in how well the intervention systems are used. And again, this can be before any particular diagnosis, mostly if a parent or teacher or other caregiver is concerned. There doesn't actually have to be an ASD diagnosis, and it doesn't have to mean there's access to ASD-specific services. Families get these Part C services regardless of a diagnosis and early, so this is a good place to start to reach families. These EI providers, they really have more frequent encounters with parents compared to regular pediatricians because there's more opportunities to be screened. Not that pediatricians shouldn't be doing it, but really we need to make sure that the opportunities for screening are early and often. This study was led by Abby Eisenhower and Alice Carter at the University of Massachusetts at Boston, and they worked with three EI providers in the greater Boston area. These EI providers were chosen because they served high rates of children of color or linguistic minorities, and children from low-income households. Now, each agency serves about 1,000 children annually, and this study started in 2012. Now, they looked at engagement with families three ways. One, the providers gave a screening packet to all eligible children. That was about 5,000 families. Then, depending on the response of those packets, they got an in-person structured screening evaluation. Finally, they referred those positive screens to a full diagnostic evaluation. The question was in this study, were there any racial and ethnic disparities along any parts of this path, either the packets, the screening after the packets, or the diagnosis? Well, first, the screening rate in general was higher than typically found in pediatricians' offices. So yes, let's do this in Part C EI centers. 
However, the EI providers were less likely to return the screening packets for non-English speaking children, even though it was provided in Spanish. Maybe there needs to be more languages in the packet and more languages that EI providers speak to explain it to them. Also, in this first stage with the packets, it was more likely to be returned from parents of children of color compared to white children. So again, let's do this. We're reaching a community that is underserved. And the children of color were more likely to screen positive in that packet. Now, there could be many reasons for that, but what's important is that it successfully engaged children of color. Yes, more needs to be done with those that don't speak English or Spanish, but now that scientists know the approach is beneficial, it's time to do that work. What this study does not do is address why fewer kids of color are diagnosed and why they don't receive as many services, but it does address an important link in the chain, and it endorses the need for focused, directed recruitment efforts to ensure that families with diverse racial and ethnic backgrounds have access to screening. Having access is just not about throwing tools around. It's about working with specific agencies and partners that are already engaged with families and have their trust to ensure that they receive these tools. Finally, an important note, it's not just about autism. Dr. Devin Payne Sturgis and Katie Hiribayashi looked at a number of different outcomes, including autism and how environmental chemicals affect this disparity. They are working on a systematic review. It's not published yet, But luckily, the investigators were willing to talk to us a little bit about the systematic review they did. This is a whole field called environmental justice. It's a fact that people of color are exposed to higher level of toxic chemicals because of the neighborhoods that they live in and their ability to protect themselves against environmental exposure. How does this translate to autism as an outcome or other developmental outcomes? What did they find across different races and ethnicities? My name is Devin Payne Sturgis, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Maryland School of Public Health. I'm also a member of Project Tender, a national alliance of scientists, health professionals, and environmental health advocates working to protect pregnant women and children from toxic chemicals and pollutants that harm brain development. With me is Katie Hirabayashi. Katie, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm a recent MPH graduate from the University of Maryland School of Public Health, and before that I worked as a research assistant at the Kennedy Krieger Institute's Center for Neurodevelopmental and Imaging Research. So Katie, you recently completed a project examining the scientific literature on social disparities in children's exposures to neurotoxic chemicals and related neurodevelopmental effects. You reviewed 177 studies. So what are your top-line findings? So our review uncovered several gaps in knowledge. We found that urban populations were studied much more frequently than rural and agricultural populations. Factors related to language, immigration, and nativity were studied infrequently. Asian and Pacific Islander populations were not well represented, and there was a conspicuous lack of research on Native American and indigenous populations. Among the studies that investigated effects between neurotoxic contaminants and social conditions like race, income, and geography, we found some evidence for interaction or effect modification. So 67% of the studies reported their presence. And specifically with regards to autism, we found 18 studies examining autism as an outcome. Interaction or effect modification was examined in six of these studies and was found to be present in five studies. For instance, One 2018 study by Al Hemden examining ASD prevalence 
found the presence of an interaction of race by air quality. Wow, your findings about synergistic effects suggest to me that environmental policies aimed at protecting the health of the average child or children in general from exposures to neurotoxic chemicals may not be as protective of children of color or children living in low wealth communities. Yeah, the fact that we see that most studies examining um, effect modification or interaction did in fact observe its presence suggests that the average child is not adequately representing the complexities of exposures and effects observed in these different populations. So how do you think we could use the results of your study to increase awareness of these disparities more broadly? So some groups have had long-standing awareness of toxic exposures disproportionately affecting their communities. After all, this has been the focus of the environmental justice movement. Our view helps document the impacts felt by these communities, which is the first step in building capacity to shape policies to improve health outcomes. And I wonder whether the autism community is aware of these disparities. Yes, the autism community is beginning to have these discussions. Uh, last December, I attended an Autism Speaks workshop on health equity, including environmental exposures. Mm -hmm. So Katie, what questions do you still have after completing this project? So we identified several groups that are understudied, uh, Native Americans, Asian and Pacific Islanders, rural communities. So we have questions about addressing these understudied groups. Uh, one big question is, how can we begin to collaborate and build trusting relationships with these communities to conduct meaningful research? And we also need to look at how these neurodevelopmental effects may persist into adulthood and even intergenerationally. Yeah, research conducted in partnership with uh, impacted communities leads to better science. Uh, there are numerous articles that have documented the benefits of community-engaged research. So I really agree with your point there. So going forward, uh, your systematic scoping review of the literature will inform project tender's work. I also think your, uh, the results of your work uh, should be of interest to anyone working to improve children's health. Now, as you just heard, some exposures hit some of these communities harder than others, and the autism community needs to understand them. And P.S., I was at that Autism Speaks meeting Dr. Payne just mentioned, and it's one of the ways autism advocacy organizations are coming together to help families from different disparate groups. Autism Science Foundation is also a part of Project Tender, which is a collaboration of scientists, stakeholders, clinicians, and policymakers that work together to ensure all children are not being exposed to dangerous levels of toxic chemicals. Bringing these ideas all together is critical if we want to ensure that we are helping kids of all ethnic and racial backgrounds. Thank you for listening this week, and I will talk to you next week.